Welcome to the ministry of Mercy Seat Ministries and evangelist Pat and Karen Jackson. We believe that the message you are about to hear will mightily change your life. Open your heart, mind, and spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to move in you. We must declare it to the next generation. I really um, get tired of listening to preachers. I'm sorry to be so blunt. They just, I mean, they say good things, but I thought I would try to would try to change the tone a little bit and, and uh, didn't realize we were going to have a, have a discussion like that before my, my session. So in your mind, just imagine that we're continuing that, except I'm the only one answering the questions right now, okay? Um, <laughs> you know, we're just, we're just going to have a dialogue. And, and I, I really prayed and tried to decide what's going to be the best, what's the best, you know, deposit to make in your, in your lives um, in 45 minutes and I really couldn't decide between three subjects, and I almost like let you vote on this, okay? What do you want to hear about? I have a, I'm a really old guy. I've been in the ministry since I was a really young guy, so I've got some experience, and my goal is to try to leverage the experience as best I can to give you something that you feel like could real, is really useful. Isn't that frustrating? It hasn't happened at this conference at all, but isn't it frustrating when people are presenting stuff that, you, like, you're over here and they're over there, and so... Help me, do you want to hear about, like, the best advice I have for growing a ministry, or do you want to hear about the best advice I have for a healthy marriage, or do you want to hear about the best advice I have for personal spiritual development? That was the temptation kind of thing. Uh, you like number three? All right, let's, let's, let's take a vote. How about best advice for growing a ministry? Anybody into that one? Uh, all right, how, who, how about best advice for a healthy marriage? Anybody into that one? Uh, you don't care about your marriages? Great. Uh, no, that's good. Uh, best advice for personal spiritual development? Who wants that? All right, we'll try to blend those. We'll try to blend those two together a little bit. Um, if, if I were going to talk about the marriage thing at all, this is kind of what I would say. I would say, um, I would say, always commit to the transformation. In fact, we can do, I don't even have to put this in the context of marriage, okay? I heard, uh, I think, I think Berto was the one who was saying, um, people get stuck, right? People get stuck. I, let me use scripture with it. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what we're really after, especially in our marriage, but in every area of our life, is we are after an ever-transforming life okay, ever-transforming marriage. And the truth is people do conform all the time. We conform to religious tradition. We conform to our wounds. We get hurt. We get stuck right there, okay. We conform to fear of man, all kind of things that we conform to. And I love that scripture where Paul says, as you behold the face in the mirror, you are being transformed from glory to glory. And I used to think that by the way, I talk kind of fast when I get excited, so just wait, just slow me down if I go, go too fast here. But I used to think that face was the face of Jesus, and the more I looked at Jesus, the more I would be transformed from glory to glory like him. But I realized that what is it, the face that's actually in the mirror is my 
is the glory of the Lord that has risen upon me. So that I am gazing at my fullest potential in that mirror. One of the things I like to do is keep setting out in front of my life the kind of marriage, the kind of ministry, the kind of friend that I think I could be to someone. And the more I see my potential out there, the more I stay in the grace that causes me to enter into the glory. Does that make sense to you? So I'm not going to... I'm not going to. I'm not going to get stuck. I mean, I've been at this for a long time, and there's an instinct, there's a tendency to say, "Do you really still want to keep going? Do you really want to raise the dead? Is that important to you? Do you really want to cast out the demons that are over Cedar Hill? Do you?" you and and the the reality is, I had these images of who I think God would have me to be, and so I I have these images of the way I think my marriage could be, and so the more I gaze at those, the more I try to come into a deeper dimension of God's of God's glory. So that's what I was going to say about marriage. I was I would also say this because this is a, one of those little episode things that has really changed the way I view a lot of arenas of life, but especially in my marriage. And maybe some of you have seen this before. This is called the wheel of experience, and the reality is um, this is this is how people get conformed. Okay, this is how you conform. Um, what happens is you you get a little impulse. And then the next thing you know, your impulse is running through your history. And then what happens is you're interpreting your interpretation. Let me just write this up and then I'll, then I'll explain it all, okay? And then you've got these emotions. And then after the emotions, you've got intention, an intention. And then you've got some decisions and then you've got actions. Okay, this is a wheel of experience, and it's spinning around in your life all the time, like really, 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 really fast. And it kind of goes like this. I'm walking down the hallway, and, you know, um, I don't know, George, George, you know, he wrinkles his eyebrow at me, or, or you know, he, he, he just snarls his face at me a little bit. And that's an impulse. And because my daddy used to snarl his face at me just a little bit like that before he would slap me, this is purely hypothetical. My dad never slapped me, okay, except once, but that's another story. <laughs> but, but because that impulse goes through my history, I immediately come up with, a, with an interpretation of that impulse that creates a sensational emotion inside me. Are you with me on this? I mean, I can't, I can't be objective about what was going on in George's mind. It might have just been a tick. He might have a physical problem that I don't even know about. But because I associate what, that impulse with something that is going on in my history. And by the way, the most dynamic components of your history are always your trauma episodes. So whatever trauma is in your history, that is going to be the most dynamic way in which you are going to interpret the impulses of your life. So what you've got now is you're trying to get a better marriage, but your wife is, do is doing something. She's you know, she sent you a signal. She she said something about you, or she she used a word that you used to use way back when you had a bad marriage. But because you got all this history built into, you know, your your bad marriage or what? I mean, the truth is. <clears throat> Uh, well, anyway, let me finish the wheel. So then you have to interpret the history, and then you've got these emotions which are feeding your new your intention. Well, George, he looked at me like that. He doesn't like me anymore. He's, he's going to hurt. And so I get this intention. I know what I'm going to do with George. You know, the next time I see him, I'm, 
me. I'm going to do something. I'm going to run from him or slap him or, or, do, or do something. So I care. And this is where most of the tension of your life really is, is in your intentions. It's when you know you should be doing something or you feel like you got to do something. You're not really sure what you're going to do about it, you know. So you got this tension, and then you make a decision. Well, I, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to. I'm just going to run up to him and jack him in the jaw as hard as I can, you know. And so you make the decision. You actually put the action to it. And this thing is just spinning around over and over and over again. And in order to make progress in your transformation, in order to make progress in your transformation, you're going to have to speak to the history of your situation. You're going to have to believe that your history is as redeemable as your present and your future. Okay? And so this goes to a lot of the things we were talking about earlier about, about your sexual history. Your sexual history has created a lot of trauma for you, and now you're carrying baggage into your holy marriage because you've got sexual trauma that you're interpreting. And so you've got to come up with all, you want me to change? You like me? You don't like this microphone? All right, so is this, does this make sense to you? Do you understand what, what we're after? And so what we're doing is we're, we're really putting grace in the history. We're, putting, we're, we're, we're redeeming the history. And let me just say one more thing about transformation, because don't you want to be transformed? I mean, I'm not talking about a conversion experience. I'm talking about from glory to glory to glory. Amen. Talking about really becoming like the image of Jesus, you know, in these last days. Transformation basically has three parts to it. As I understand it, my wife and I, when, when we were, when Beck and I were first married, uh, we were we were extremely young when we got married. We carried a lot of baggage into our marriage, and the truth is, after about three years, we decided we just hated one another, and we talked about it a lot. That we would we would never love one another. That we both had made mistakes about about our spouse. That that we were going to be we wouldn't get divorced because our career would be jeopardized if we got a divorce. And, 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 you know, we just had too much culture keeping us together. But the truth was we didn't love one another, and we couldn't ever imagine that we would love one another. So we had just settled in to, we had conformed to a life of misery. <laughs> and uh, what happened was that she went to a prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to find a theological term that's appropriate here, but I'm just going to say the Holy Spirit manifest a deliverance in her life so that when she came back from the prayer meeting this was the sentence she said Jim I don't love you but for the first time in our marriage I want to want to love you I want to want to love you that's a seed that's a breakthrough that's a that's a Holy Spirit desire planted in a human being okay but most of us in our discipleship structures think once the altar experience occurs, uh, I mean, we can go ahead and we can go ahead and sign them up, but send them to you know credentials and whatever. When the Holy Spirit gives a breakthrough, that's when our jobs begin. Okay, that's when our that's when our stuff really starts happening. So, what what this is under the subject of transformation how do you really transform and so the next thing that has to happen 
after the Holy Spirit has spoken to her is we have to begin the literal change. Okay, so what does the Bible say? It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, say it, mind. Okay, mind. So we know that we've got this, we've got, we've got this three parts to us, the spirit and our body, you know, and our soul. And I'm just using mind for, for the idea of soul. And so we begin this process of renewing our mind past our history. We begin to really use the Word of God. We begin to try to build some hope, okay? So we're renewing our mind. And um, this becomes... This becomes the great challenge of everybody who really wants to change is can your mind submit to what the Holy Spirit has said? Can your mind submit to the revelation that has come to you about your future, about the way you're going to become, about this image where you see yourself in your dream, you see your potential, you see that God has announced something over you, you've got a destiny out there. Can, can your mind embrace what the Holy Spirit has said? That's a real battle. Come on, somebody, do you understand? It is, a, it is a battle. But that's not even the greatest battle in, a, in this transformation of marriage because if your mind submits to the Holy Spirit, the next thing you got to do is you have to retrain your body because your body has learned habits that are, that are in alignment with the expression of what was controlling you. I didn't say that really well. Let me, let me commit that again. Let me go back for just a second to the soul. You know that the, the Hebrew word for soul is the word nefesh, which is, which is neck. And so basically what happens is when the Holy Spirit breathes something into your spirit, man, the next challenge is to get it unclogged. Don't let it, you know, your neck, that's the place you can choke. That's the, I mean, you know, it's like a kink in a hose. It's not going to be a flow of anointing in your life if your mind is not in alignment with what the Spirit is saying to you. Don't you hate denominationalism that says think this, think this, think this when the Holy Spirit sometimes is saying flow this, flow this, flow this. And so you gotta get you gotta get your mind aligned with your spirit, but then you have to get your body in a position that it really can express what the new revelation is that your mind has come into alignment with. I mean, do you remember when you first what do you do? Do you can you skate backwards? Can you? No, nobody can skate backwards. Way to go. Uh, all right, how about this? Do you, do you remember when you learned to drive? And if you, if you I learned with a clutch. If you, if you start driving and you're learning, especially with a clutch, your mind is engaged in it so that it's literally telling your foot how far to bring that foot up off the clutch. You gotta remember to tell your hand to turn the blinker. You gotta have hand go 10 and two, get it. Your mind is really engaged with your body in the process of learning how to drive. But, but there comes a time in your driving career when you're not even thinking about what you're doing, right? I mean, you're just, you're just cruising, you're just doing it. And, I, I really think, come on, can I just tell you what I think? Because I'm not preaching, so it's, I'm just talking, so I can tell you what I think. I think there's a lot of ministry that just is, you've, you've just learned to express ministry out of a body that you're not even thinking about it anymore. 
You're not even thinking about what you're doing anymore. You just learn cruise control. You're just doing it out of, out of the hat. You're just doing it because somebody else did it. You're just going. And when you really change, I mean, the Bible talks about haughty eyes and, a, and, a, and lips that are quick to tell lies. Well, you see, when Beck and I were trying to get our marriage worked out, you know, we had to literally retrain our body to align with the revelation of the Holy Spirit that we were going to love one another. So we had, to, we had to literally think, I'm going to reach out and, and take her hand now. I'm going to hold her hand now. Oh, my mind is telling me I'm going to put my arm around her. I'm going to give her a little hug. I'm going to give her a little squeeze. Our body had learned behavior that was enforcing the, the death instead of accelerating the, the resurrection moment of the Holy Spirit. So my mind had to really engage it, and then my body had to be retrained to express the new, the new revelation, you see. And now, he's reaching out, taking her hand, hugging her. That's about as far as I'll go with you in the illustrations. But do you understand? We've learned how to express the better reality. And I'm just trying to give you a fundamental process by which real transformation takes place. Here it is. Holy Spirit speaks something to you. Your mind agrees with it. You learn it, you hammer it out, you build a theological framework for it, and then you train the physical world to express it. You build a culture in your body and around you that can literally express it. Okay? So that's how transformation takes place. And that was the little talk I was going to give you about marriage. So which one did you say you wanted to hear about? <laughs> the be best advice for growing a ministry. All right, let's do that one real quick. Best, best advice for growing a ministry. How much time did I use on that? Ten minutes, maybe? Because I, huh? I got 25 minutes. Awesome. Best advice for growing a ministry. Build your ministry. I'm just looking to see if I'm, if I'm in conflict with any of the other talks that have gone forward. Here's the best advice for growing a ministry. Build your ministry around values, not vision. People connect with values, not vision. I mean, some people will connect with some vision, but if you have a vision that really is a magnet for people, it's going to be an incredible vision. I'd like to know what it is. Our vision is changing all the time. We have a vision for foster children and a vision for building programs, and we have a vision to eradicate poverty. We have a vision for can And, you know, it's crazy. It's schizophrenic vision around here. So it's not, we're not, we're not asking people to come to our vision. We're asking people to come to our values. And our values, and you see them on the walls out there in Legacy Park, our values are, are basically built. And there's a big story about how those came to me. How those, it was just one of those, like three or four experiences in my life where the Holy Spirit downloaded vocabulary I'd never heard before. And he just basically says, these are going to be your core values. And it, and I'm not going to talk about my core values. I just want to talk about one because I think it's it's really the one on sort of the sort of the the pin, the linchpin from which the other core values built. And it was the one that changed my life the most. I'd always been a man of substance. That is core value number one at our church, which means that when people come to our church, they have a reliable expectation of the presence of God and the testimony of Jesus. Substance. We're going to be a church of substance. We're when people come into our church. If they're not experiencing the literal presence of God, we're not giving them who we really are. All right? Substance. Second core value, covenant relationships. Third core value is marketplace. 
we are we don't measure ourselves we don't measure the success of our church by what happens on Sunday but what happens on Monday through Saturday in our community and then our fourth core value is legacy we know that there's a generation coming behind us with potential both for good and evil my job is to bring out the good okay but I want to talk about covenant relationships for just a little bit because what I learned about covenant relationships and I'm just I'm telling you I'm not being dramatic I don't know what I did with my eraser where did I there it is I'm not, I'm not being dramatic when I tell you that this was a, a category one spiritual experience for me. I was in a position in my ministry where I really wanted to leave this church. Um, those of you who know the history of our church, um, I've been here for 17 years. The founding pastor of this church was here for 17 years. And after 17 years, he was discovered to have been involved in a homosexual relationship with his administrator, who was also on staff of this church. So... Um, our church went through a tough time, and we went through some confusion, you know? We, we were a little bit lost. We didn't, we didn't know what was going on. And so for about the first eight or ten years here, it was survival mode. It was like, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? We're probably not going to make it. We might make it. And then finally, after about ten years, we're going to make it. We're gonna, it's okay, we're gonna make it. And that, that was my greatest crisis, was when I realized there's a lot of potential here. This is, and I looked at me and I'm like, I don't think I'm the one to lead our church into its potential and I'd rather not violate the potential. So I was praying, God send me somewhere, send me somewhere where mediocrity will work, you know? Send me somewhere, send me to Alabama. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm, just send me somewhere, you know, just send me somewhere where, because uh, I see the potential of this place, and I'm not the one to lead us there. And God just really just nailed me. Oh, gosh, he just beat the stink out of me. And he said, I have made you to transform from glory to glory to glory. I've made you to lead this people. And he just downloaded this language. Substance, covenant relationships, legacy. And, and the, the one that was the most impacting in my personal spiritual development is this idea of covenant relationships. I'm just going to give it to you real quickly. And the idea basically is instead of my relationships being contracts with people, the Lord said, I want you to start having relationships the way I have relationships. I want you to be faithful to them even when they're not faithful to you. Now you understand that most relations, 99.9% .9 of the relationships in the world are contractual, even marriage relationships. Most people think they are contractual instead of covenant. And the idea behind a contractual relationship is, look, as long as you're putting on the table what you're supposed to put on the table, and I'm putting on the table what I'm supposed to put on the table, we'll get along fine. But the nature of a contractual relationship is such that I can't be vulnerable. I'm not going to be intimate with you because I know intuitively, sooner or later, I'm going to disappoint you or you're going to disappoint me. You're not going to perform up to my expectation and I'm not going to perform up to your expectation. So you stay guarded, even in marriages, even everywhere. Even you stay guarded, right, in the relationship. But what the Lord was asking of me and what I'm now asking of you is to begin to go into the kind of relationship where the attitude of your heart is, I don't really need anything from you because I found the ultimate relationship. So I'm in a position to want what is good for you and want what is best for you. And that's the orientation of my heart. And when I began to minister out of the idea of covenant relationships instead of contractual relationships, people... <laughs> 
this is just the illustration that I think many of you will relate to. When people left my church before, when they would leave my church before I came into this, I would be angry, I would be depressed, I would take it personal, okay? Don't look at me like, really? You did that? I mean, come on. I, was, I mean, I would get so ticked when people leave. But, but when I said, you know what, seriously, I want what's best for that person. I want what's best for the kingdom of God. My, or, my emotional orientation completely redirected. And I was like, well, if it's best. And, and this is the freedom for me. Covenant relationship does not mean I have to be nice to people. See? You didn't even snicker at that at all, but it's because you don't know me. I mean, I was afraid I was going to have to be nice to people all the time, and that just would kill me because being nice is one of the hardest things I can do. But I realized I don't have to be nice to them. I just have to want what's best for them. So if they're in a, uh, if they're in a relationship that's destroying themselves or the people around them, my responsibility is not go pat them on the hand and say, oh, let's be nice. My responsibility is say, I want what's good for you, so stop doing that. Does that, do you understand? And so my ministry has a new fountain to it. <laughs> I know this is, I'm embarrassed that it took me so long to figure this out. But the fountain of my ministry is I really want what's good for the people that are in my, under my sphere. I really want them to flourish. And it just re, re, and I'm so embarrassed. I'm really embarrassed to tell you this. But I know at least one or two other pastors that, because I learned it from them. And what would happen is you would go into a membership seminar, you would see a guest, and immediately your mind is, I wonder how they're going to help me with my vision. I wonder if this is a singer. I wonder if this guy can play the guitar. I wonder if they can write a big check. And you're, from the very beginning, you're entering into a contractual relationship instead of warning in your heart, warning what's good for them. Now, here's the, here's the benefit of a covenant relationship that I, I just fell into this. I had no idea. <laughs> had no idea. But our church is very committed to the supernatural. We strongly believe. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14.1 is one of our main mottos. The strongest verb in the New Testament is this. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. We really think that's an important one and so we're all about supernatural we believe that the growth of our church is really because we began to see people get healed and begin to operate in spiritual gifts I mean we think we think we can find some of that in the book of Acts the book of Acts grew we grew and we we're we're not one of those churches that put spiritual gifts in the back corner and says well let's get all the believers over there and they can speak in tongues and interpret with one another I mean we have stuff go on here okay we really we really do and and what we began to realize is that spiritual realities and relational realities are very connected. What we found was that the kingdom of God is built around agreements. If two of us agree together, it's touching. And so what I just observed one day is that every time in the book of Acts there is a record of supernatural manifestations when the apostles gave witness of the, gave testimony of the resurrection through signs and wonders or whenever the, they were in the upper room and the Holy Spirit fell. In every context, in every immediate context, you can find a place where it says, and they were all together in one place in one accord. Or they were all together on Solomon's porch. Or, or they were, uh, there, where there was a sense of unity, there was the manifestation of the kingdom. See? And I am more responsible than anybody else in my church 
for healthy relationships. I set a culture for covenant relationships. It's really hard. It's really, really hard for me. I mean, I'm just wired. I'm wired. I'm wired to fail relationally. So it's taking a lot of grace to come into really, really wanting the other churches in our community to flourish instead of competing with them. It's really, it's hard for me. I'm just telling you the truth. You see? So, and yet, my burden for the city demands I do that. So I got to learn how to transform. You see how I'm kind of connecting all this? I got to learn that I can't conform to an old historical place. I've got to reinterpret my history. I've got I've to keep on coming into the image that God sees of me that he's announced over my life as to who I'm going to become. I wish I could just say, let me lay hands on you and, and you'll become that person. It, I'm just saying it's hard, stinking hard work. Because you got to renew your mind and retrain your body. See? Okay, that's all I know about that. Um, here's my best advice for your personal spiritual development. How much time have I got? Is it going? No, so I, no I'm serious. I want to stop when I'm supposed to stop. Ten minutes? 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Okay, here's my best advice for personal spiritual development. Are you ready? You ready to write this down? Beth, how many of you know personal spiritual de development does not happen by osmosis? You have to take responsibility for it. You can hang out, you can hang out with the most spiritual people in the world. It's not going to bleed over into you. You have to take responsibility for personal spiritual development. Okay, get a coach, get a counselor, everything you can. You have to take responsibility for personal spiritual development. Here's my best advice on how, <laughs> how you can take responsibility for personal spiritual development. Are you ready? Drum roll. Are you ready? Don't sin. Don't sin. That's my best advice. And Beck and I, have not, we, we were talking about it this week, actually. We noticed that there are times in our ministry when we feel, when we feel less whole and when we feel that, what we've learned to do is trace back to, did we see a movie that really kind of, we weren't supposed, did we spend money selfishly? Did we do something? And almost every time we can find that, you know what? Sin actually dampened the anointing. Sin actually, it, it actually quenched the passion we have for our people. You see? By the way, do you know, do, do you know how to measure spiritual wholeness? Do you know how, do you know how you know when you're wholeness, not when spiritual gifts are operating? Here's how. Here's how you know when you are whole spiritually. These two attributes are manifest in your life. Number one, a sense of transcendence. I can do all things through Christ. I can lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. I'm, I'm more than I seem like I am. Transcendence. Okay? Buzz. Buzz Lightyear, was that his name? Infinity and beyond. That's me, dude. The, whole, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it's living, in, it's living right here inside me. Come on, I can do something. I can do something. I can cast out demons. I can heal the sick. Wholeness manifests. This is not pride. This is not arrogance. This is awareness. I've been chosen by God for this generation. 
transcendence. But the other way I know that, that I am whole is intimacy. Transcendence and intimacy. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, I can do stuff out of heaven here in the earth. Pursue love. My relationships must succeed. I know that I am spiritually whole if I am succeeding with my intimacies and I am operating with a sense of heaven here in the earth. Okay? Now, I just did this. I'm just learning this teaching, and I just actually, the first time I ever taught it was last night to my, to my Bible study. Let me just, because it's really alive for me. <clears throat> Temptation. Temptation always precedes sin. Always, always precedes sin. Okay, and and what I learned about Jesus and his temptation that I'd never seen before is that the temptation that faces you is uniquely designed. It is it is a personally crafted temptation. Okay, Satan doesn't have a temptation book, and he's just well. Here's page thirty three. I think I'll try that for old, old Sawyer and see how it works out. Satan knows more about you than you know about yourself. So he customizes your temptations. Does that make sense? I mean, you see that right there, right? Here's Jesus. He goes. He's baptized. The, this is his category one spiritual experience. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. <laughs> you know, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, this is Jesus' own youth camp experience right here. He is called into the ministry. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it is going on for Jesus. He comes up out of the water saying, give me a church. Give me a youth group. Give me the kingdom. Let me do it, okay? And then he goes a few. We've been to Israel, so it's really from the place he was baptized to the Mount of Transfiguration is not even a full day's journey. It's just a few, it's just a few steps. And he goes to the Mount of Temptation and he's in the wilderness and he's head on with the devil and the devil tempts him with two categories now let me just let me just, before I tell you what those are here's what the devil wants to do he wants to deceive you away from your identity and the love of God remember how he said if you're the son of God if you're the son of God if you're the son of God so much he wants you to lose focus of the proclamation of your glory he wants you to mar the mirror so that you can't see your potential in the future. So he's always trying to tempt you. He's trying to deceive you into believing that you are not who God says you are. I mean, I, I still hear it all the time. Who do you think you are to be pastoring a church like this? Really? Come on, Jim. You kick the cat all the time. You still think cuss words. How, can, how dare you present yourself as a holy person? See? And so he's always trying to get you to doubt your identity. Your identity, I love what somebody said earlier, is just because you desire three pieces of chocolate cake, you are not a glutton until you eat all three of them. Just because you have homosexual thoughts, just because you have, you are, action is where the sin is. You, you, that's when your identity becomes to get, gets marred. It's when you start doing the things that are outside your identity. So it's all about trying to get you not to understand who you are in Christ and to doubt the love of God, okay, to doubt his love. The greatest spiritual lesson I ever learned is that you must daily grind into your life the reality that the Father loves you. Grind it down. Okay, so here's Jesus, and he's come out of his youth camp experience, and he goes right over, and he's facing the devil, and there are two things that the devil is trying to get him 
there's two techniques that the devil is using. Here's the first. He says, I know, you've been, I know this about you. You've been 40 days without food. So what's the first temptation? Make some bread. Come on, Jesus. You deserve this. Make some bread. So the devil will go after weaknesses, but what's on the back end of the temptation? The back end of the temptation is, I know that you were just baptized, and I know that the Father just declared your greatness. You're the Messiah. You're the ones that the prophet, you're who the prophets have been talking about from the beginning. That's who you are. That's your idea. You've got all this power. Use your power illegitimately. So the enemy will tempt you always either in your weaknesses or in your strengths. And can I say that for most of the people in this room, the temptations that are going to come to you probably aren't in your weaknesses, but in your strengths. I mean, I, I've been the pastor here for 17 years, and the Lord has done some amazing things, and it's just inevitable. It's just inevitable that the people who hang out here are going to, they're going to honor, they're going to honor me. It's not that I seek it, it's just they're going to because it's just the way psychology works. And so I don't ha really have anybody in my life that is going to look at their watch and say, you took 15 extra minutes for lunch today. And I don't really have anybody in my life that's going to that's gonna say, you know that receipt that you forgot to turn in, you know, what's the deal? See, I have more power than I had 30 years ago when I began as a youth pastor. And so when the enemy comes to me, I have to be more guarded about my power areas than I do my weekends. Does that make sense to anybody at all? Yep. See? So the enemy really knows more about me than I know about myself. So how am I going to leverage how am I going to make it a fair playing field how am I going to how am I going to conquer this how am I going to deal with this and, and I'm going to just give you one thing I'm done with this so I want to be practical okay I, I have to know no, more about myself than he knows about me I have to be really diligent about knowing my strengths and my weaknesses and how am I going to do that well I wish I wish Sam were still around Farina um, Beck and I, Beck and I hired a personal counselor that we go to. We go to a counselor to help us objectively see our strengths and our weaknesses in our marriage, in our family, in our ministry. Okay, but here's here's the best here's the best thing. Uh, the, the best way not to sin is to really let two or three people in your life who you give permission to say you got egg on your face you got egg right here and I love you enough to let because in the ministry it's so counterintuitive to really get vulnerable and I know that's that almost sounds cliche-ish I mean but this truth is you're not even going to be vulnerable in a meeting like this. There's got to be two or three people who help you know you. Who help you know when you're weary. Who help you know when your faith is 
is wilting a little bit, who help you know when you're getting a little bit prideful. And, you, and, and they, they, can know, they can speak to you. And if you don't have that, then, um, you know, hopefully you got a wife that has the courage to tell you that. You know. And, and I think that's about all I know about that. Too. So, in conclusion, I don't have a conclusion. Father, our world is desperate for a clear image of God. We feel so inadequate to represent you to a broken, confused city that doesn't know its right hand from its left. And yet, on the other hand, we are chosen. We're called. We're filled with the same spirit. We are filled with the spirit that hovered over the formless creation and at your word began to make the mountains and the rivers and the animals. Lord, we are mighty men of God who are very aware of our sin and very aware of your righteousness in us. So Lord, we're picking and choosing some things to change about our life, about our world. Let's just start with our relational world. We hurt people all the time. We don't mean to. We don't want to. But Lord, we put on, come on, Holy Spirit, give us, give us revelation right now. Give us revelation right now about transforming our relational world about what it means to lay our life down for somebody else, about what it means to really want other people to succeed, really commit ourselves to helping somebody else's dreams come true. God, there's a deep hunger you've put in us because, you know, the Spirit of God is in us. Jesus is in us, and so the things He hungers for, mm, we long for. We long for your kingdom to come. And so we make vow to you today that our mind will submit to what the Spirit says about how we should love people. 
God, is it that simple that we just really, really love people? Not to use people, but to love them. Father, I thank you that you've, you've stationed us. You've, you've placed us between clashing kingdoms. This kingdom of darkness. This kingdom of brokenness. And this kingdom of light, this kingdom of love, we're right between them. We are absorbing the conflict of, of a messed up world and we are delivering into that messed up world the resurrection authority of Jesus and the sacrificial love of God. Help us not to come unglued in the midst of it. I speak wholeness right now in the name of Jesus over these men of God. I speak that we do not conform to our wounds or, nor our fears. We say in the name of Jesus that our history is behind us. We're making new history now. You have redeemed our history. We speak to our intentions, and we say that our intentions shall always be to bring great glory to your name. You're the king. We bow before you. Spirit of God, release to us now dimensions of your love for people that are beyond our normal, beyond our natural. God, we receive your burden right now. Your burden for people. The altar's open. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name that at the hands of this remnant, we are going to see tumors shrivel. We are going to see blind eyes open. We are going to see prophetic piercings into the layers of resistance that are in the people that we serve. But Father, we do it not out of a sense of aggrandizement, but we do it out of the heart of a servant. I thank you that our relationships succeed and we are transcendent by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you that the Word of God is alive in us. And in the same way that Jesus had a memorized position that assaulted the momentum of darkness and he dismantled the, the energy of the temptation, Father, we have that same Word. And we are diligent to renew our minds so that we are not vulnerable to the devices of the enemy. And on the other hand, we, Lord, we are thankful for our strengths. And in our weaknesses, your strength comes forth. We thank you, Father. We thank you. We thank you that temptation in so many ways validates who you have declared us to be. Father, we thank you that nothing has changed between the baptism and the wilderness. We are still called of you. Father, I pray. I pray over those who are in the wilderness right now. Nothing has changed. The love of the Father is constant. Whether we were in the storm or whether we're celebrating the, the, latest, the latest book signing. The, 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 it is constant. Your love is constant. We grind it down into our spirit right now. We are loved of the Father. You don't have to prove that anymore. You don't have to prove it to us, Lord. 
We bring into captivity those thoughts and those imaginations that cause us to doubt that you love us. We bring those ideas into, into captivity because they exalt themselves against the knowing of you. And we are assigned to know you. Father, there's something happening to our spirit right now that is causing an alertness and a sensitivity and a sense strength, strength, strength. Father, we recognize clear anointing. The word of the Lord says we have an anointing from the Holy One. We're not having to ask for an anointing. We have it. So we, when we present that anointing to you now, this desperate, desperate hour, this, this decade of decadence, oh God. We are the church. We are the church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. We pray that this word would sit in your spirit and transform you. For more information or to become a covenant partner with Mercy Seat Ministries and Evangelist Pat Karen Chatsline, you can log on to www.mercyseatministries.com.